0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole
1: here with Tanner. And today we want to do a discussion about preoperative medications, home medications, and this is a huge category of medications. So by all means we are not going through every single one today, but we want to go through some of the more common classes of medicines that you might see a patient on either as a regular home medicine that they would they either would have to hold or if they do come in with it, do you have to cancel the procedure? What are the implications that you're going to have to do if they are taking some of these medications? as well as some of the medications that we might give in pre-op. And so we're gonna lump all of those into one category here. And so to start off, we're gonna go through different anxiolytics. So Versed would be the main one that comes to mind. Then we're gonna move into insulin and oral hypoglycemic medications or agents. Then we're gonna move into the self-administered medications, So over-the-counter meds, herbal agents, illicit drug use, We'll move into psychiatric medications, and then we'll finish off with anticoagulants. So Tanner, do you just want to start us off with the more angiolytics? And again, this is something that we can give in the preoperative setting, but this also can be something that somebody is on regularly, and it might affect a little bit of how we do our, our anesthetic.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think this is important as we go through this talk today to keep in mind that when we're looking at a patient's chart, you're obviously looking at the patient first, and you are doing a full assessment of the patient. And then many times as you go through their chart and you're kind of combining what you've done in your personal assessment with their chart and their different medications they're taking or their different medical histories. But this is something that you know may may play into your pre-op assessment with patients that are taking uh, these different medications at home. So again, for example, we're talking about benzos here at the beginning. Like Cole said, typically when, when we're giving these preoperatively, this is usually a Versed that we're giving. You can see these patients many times if they're taking benzos at home, typically it'll be Xanax or Ativan are the, the two main ones that we see prescribed for panic anxiety disorders. You can see it for insomnia. You can also see it for treatment for seizures as well as, as another reason that this could be ordered for patients. So again, important that we we look at the medication and then investigate You know what's the the underlying cause for this medication to try to figure out again kind of the the bottom line for the patient it can cause decreased motor function and drowsiness if you're noticing that you know you, you come up with this while you're doing your patient assessment this could also be a solution for that like i said many times we use versed in the pre-op setting the onset is very short 30 to 60 seconds it's metabolized by the p450 enzymes in the liver and intestines and This is something that in my personal practice, I've kind of gone back and forth on giving as frequently, you know, the nice side effect of it is that it's going to reduce the ability for the patient to have memory of, you know, going back to the O.R., or even as you're going through your induction, the downside of it is potentially some post-operative delirium, with, especially with elderly patients, or sometimes just delayed wakefulness if you've uh, given this in somebody and maybe have a really short case or something like that. So uh, definitely not something that we give on every single patient, every single case, but is the most common medication that we would give for an anxiolytic in the preoperative setting. Versed has a very short action. I know the onset, like I just said, is 30, 60 seconds, but the actual half-life is much shorter than Ativan. Ativan a six-hour half-life. And then uh, diazepam is actually the longer of the three that will stay in the body much longer. The half-life there is 43 hours. The patient is going to wake up or kind of clear this drug or clear the side effects, I should say, more accurately, because of redistribution uh, rather than elimination from the body. Ferset especially does have an active metabolite. So that's one hydroxymidazolam, and that would be excreted in the renal system. So very important that you consider this for patients that have any kind of renal disease. The things that we really like about these medications when we're talking about the perioperative setting i already mentioned this a little bit but if you do have a patient that has any issues with a seizure disorder it is you know decreases anticonvulsant effects it does provide enterograde amnesia remember it's not retrograde amnesia Anterograde amnesia though is a benefit as you're going back to the or It's nice for the patients, again, just to provide some relief from any kind of anxiety they're feeling as they're going back to the OR. Keep in mind, though, there's no analgesia with giving any Versed. Another nice profile of this medication is that it has very limited cardiac and respiratory side effects, so safe to give with your patients who have cardiac history or respiratory history. Many times we'll give this in, in pairing if we're trying to do an alternate induction for somebody who has, you know, the cardiac history, then you could give you know, some Versed, again, that's going to cause that anterograde amnesia, which will help if you're giving lighter induction doses, then you can mix in some other things. So many times it's nice with those cardiac inductions. Make sure you do not give this for patients with porphyria. We have on our induction IV agent episode a much longer discussion about that, so I won't go into that here, but it's important to remember. The last thing I want to mention with these benzos, we know these work on the GABA receptor. You're going to reverse with flumazanil. That's going to be a reversal here. It doesn't cause anxiety because it's not an inverse agonist, so you don't have to be worried that just by reversing the effects here that you're going to actually cause anxiety. So that's a, a something to keep in mind. It does have a shorter half-life than many benzos, so you may need to redose it. And then for dosing of this, keep in mind it's 0.2 milligram doses up to a milligram dose. You can see some seizures in patients with chronic benzo use. So again, keep that in mind if you're reversing with fumazinol.
1: So next, let's talk about patients who are either on insulin or oral hypoglycemics. And this is going to be for the patients that either have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And over the last two to three decades, anesthesia as a whole has seen a growth in the amount of especially type 2 diabetics in our country. And it's imperative that we understand how to manage these patients' blood glucose levels. What do we do with their medications that they're on? How do we successfully take care of these patients from preoperative all the way to post-op setting. And the reason this is so important is because the surgical stress will induce insulin resistance as well as increase the endogenous glucose production. So you tie those two together and they're both going to increase the amount of glucose levels in the plasma. And blood glucose levels that are greater than 180 milligrams per deciliter in the plasma can impair, one, the immune system, increase susceptibility to infections, It can lead to an increased risk of thrombosis, which will then increase the risk of stroke, acute myocardial infarction, et cetera. And you can see how keeping these patients' blood glucose levels within check under 180 milligrams per deciliter can really have a significant impact on their recovery status. So what are some of the medications that these patients are going to come in on? Let's first talk about type 2 diabetics. So with, with type 2 diabetics, they're going to be on these oral hypoglycemic medications most likely. And the first line medication, almost by and large, that is that is started on type 2 diabetics is metformin. So if metformin is then unable to control the blood glucose levels, it's unable to keep them in check, then another oral glucose-lowering drug is going to be started, and we'll get into those here in a second, and they're going to be grouped based on their mechanism of action. So I'm not going to go through every example, but I'm going to go through the classes that they're in. And so one of the first mechanisms of action that we can have with these drugs is increasing insulin release. This is going to increase the amount of insulin being released in the body, able to to help lower that glucose level. One of the more common classes under this grouping is going to be sulfonylurea, which is recommended by the American Diabetes Association to be started. Given that there is no atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, it's recommended to be started when metformin is not enough to maintain the blood glucose levels. So you often will see your type 2 diabetic patients that are on metformin and something else on one of the medications under this class. The other class of medication that is under this category is going to be And meglutinides are also recommended by the American Diabetes Association to be started when metformin is not enough to maintain those blood glucose levels in the same way here, given that there's no atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or any chronic kidney disease. So now with both of those two classes of medications, it's recommended to hold them the day of the procedure due to the patient needing to fast prior to their anesthetic. So you're going to see this with all these medications that we go through here. When somebody's taking these oral hypoglycemic meds, the purpose of that is to obviously lower the glucose levels. But if we have them fasting before their procedure, they're not going to have that rising glucose levels in the same way that they would have if they were continuing to eat. And again, this is going to be different depending on if you have a patient who has a 7.30 a.m. case where they are going to go NPO at midnight and they're not going to eat anything overnight anyway versus somebody who has a 4 o'clock in the afternoon procedure and they have not ate any food all day long and the night before. And you're going to see a dramatic shift here. That's why it's really important that you're checking their, their blood glucose levels in the preoperative setting when they first come in. But again, the overarching recommendation uh, of what to do for these patients is, depending on what time of day they're, they're starting at, regardless of that, you still have them hold it the day of the procedure so they can take it even that night before. But when they first come in, you should monitor to ensure that no hyper or hypoglycemia is present. And if you're in an ambulatory surgery, Again, and your fasting is less than six hours. So again, if you have a patient who's really early in the morning with their case and their their, their fasting is going to be less than six hours, then the guidelines do state that you can still give sulfonylurea medications that day of their procedure. But again, that's only if you have fasting less than six hours and it's an ambulatory surgery. So another class of medication here is dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor. And this is increases the secretion of that insulin from the pancreatic beta cells. And these drugs do not need to be held the day of the procedure. So again, this is the only class of medications in this grouping of increasing the release of insulin that does not need to be held the day of the procedure.
0: All right. So like Cole just talked about, that first group is increasing insulin release. The next group that we want to talk about is medications that will increase the actual action of insulin. So the the large examples here is you have the guanides and you have thiazolidinediones are the two main categories that will be increasing the action here. So the first one, the thiazolidinediones will increase insulin sensitivity in the peripheral tissues. You have several examples here. One would be pyoglitazone. You can take these on the day of surgery. So, this would also go along with, cool, I think you mentioned on that previous one, the dipeptidyl peptidase four inhibitors. You can take those the day of surgery, so these you can also take the day of surgery. And the next category is the biguanides. These inhibit endogenous hepatic glucose production. So this is the you know, group that we typically think of. This is metformin, okay? So this is recommended as your first line therapy for type two diabetics. Metformin is associated with lactic acidosis. That's a concern for patients that have chronic kidney disease, heart failure, if they have chronic liver failure as well. So these are typically recommended to stop metformin the day before the procedure. It's only recommended to continue metformin through the day of surgery if it's a minor surgery or if the patient does not have any renal dysfunction, they don't have any use of NSAIDs, or if there's no concurrent use of ACE inhibitors or angiotensin 2 receptor antagonists as well, then they can go ahead and continue taking the metformin. The other thing that would be on that list would be that they have no contrast dye administration for the case as well. You can go ahead and start metformin again after the case once oral intake has been started. So again, just holding it the morning of surgery, Except for those specific scenarios that I just mentioned. And then again, just start it as soon as they're taking intake orally after the case. These next categories are medications that reduce glucose absorption. So this would be alpha glucosidase inhibitors. These will prevent intestinal glucose absorption. Like I just said, you can hold these drugs when the patient is fasting on the day of surgery. And just like we mentioned with metformin, you can go ahead and start these once the diet is restarted. The last overarching group here is the medications that will increase urinary glucose elimination. So this is sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. You, these will block the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 in the kidneys. So this will increase excretion of glucose and prevent reabsorption. Risk here is for ketoacidosis because you can have insulinopenia, hypovolemia, and you can also have increased levels of counter-regulating hormones and that would be like glucagon or cortisol also epinephrine so patients that are undergoing anesthesia on these medications are at risk like i just said for ketoacidosis so it's recommended you don't take these on the day of surgery again you can restart these after nutrition is restarted with all of these i think that you know typically the main ones that we're going to see is metformin that's the one that you see most commonly But it's important to understand the different mechanisms of these different class of medications, how they're working. So we have increasing insulin release. We have increasing the actual action of insulin. We have reducing glucose absorption in the gut. And then we have increasing urinary glucose elimination. These four different methods of managing type 2 diabetes. And it's important that we know the differences in if we're going to continue them, if we're going to cancel them, and then also the different risk factors, whether that is ketoacidosis or lactic acidosis or, you know, what have you with the different medications, what you can be looking out for with these patients that are on these medications. With all of these for type 2 diabetes patients on oral hypoglycemic medications, it's important. It's imperative that we're monitoring the blood glucose throughout the perioperative period. Insulin can be given when blood glucose is greater than 180. And then also you want to be making sure that, you know, these patients are not too low. Typically, we're thinking about holding these different oral hypoglycemic medications, then you're probably thinking that you'll be more on the hyperglycemic side. But you never know. Patients may have, you know, accidentally taken them or, you know, they could have an abnormal response. And so you want to make sure that you're also looking out for increased lethargy or, you know, alterations. That would be a sign of decreased blood glucose as well. So for type
1: 1 diabetic patients they have an absolute deficiency in insulin. So there needs to be continually this insulin given to the patient, even with fasting prior to a procedure. And this is so that the patient doesn't have ketosis form. We want to prevent ketosis from forming. And so it's recommended, and again, this depends on the literature that you read and the patient's risk factors for hypoglycemia, but it's recommended to continue somewhere between 50 to 80% of the patient's basal insulin dose the evening before and the morning of the surgery. So their basal insulin dose to continue at about half, up to a little bit more. Some sources I've read say even down to 25%. But again, you have to take in the risk factors of how, how much at risk is this patient for forming hypoglycemia prior to coming into the preoperative setting. Now, long-acting insulin, so glargine and detrimere, should be reduced by 20 to 30% the night before and the day of the surgery. Intermediate-acting insulin, the risk is higher than for hypoglycemia. If you if you give the intermediate acting, so a reduction in at least fifty percent of this dose is recommended the day before and the day of surgery. And when you get the patient to pre-op again with all these medications, when when anybody that's a type one or type two diabetic, it's recommended that when they first get to pre-op, you check the patient's blood glucose level. And if it's greater than two hundred milligrams per deciliter, then fifty percent of the dose should be given. So if they're, for example, here if they're on intermediate acting insulin they get to the preoperative setting, it's over 200. You give 50% of, of that intermediate acting insulin. And if the glucose is less than 200 milligrams per deciliter, then you don't worry about it. However, in patients that take high doses of basal insulin, so greater than 60% of their total daily insulin, greater than 60% of that is just the basal insulin, or if the total daily insulin dose is greater than 80 units, or if they're at high risk for the hypoglycemia I talked about. So examples of this would be elderly patients, renal or hepatic insufficiency patients, prior hypoglycemic episodes. If any of those apply, then your basal insulin dose should be reduced by more than 50%, down to even 75% reduction. And that's, again, just to minimize the hypoglycemic risk. And then for people that are on long- ultra long acting insulin owing oh to that such long half-life, then that dose reduction should be made at least three days before surgery. And that's going to be with the help of the endocrinologist or diabetes care team. So again, th- there's a lot that kind of goes into all of this. And it depends on not just simply is the patient on insulin, but more is the patient on what kind of insulin? Is it rapid acting, short acting, intermediate acting, long acting, ultra long, basal dose? How much risk are they for hypoglycemia? And that is the biggest risk that we're worrying about with these patients is how do we we keep them in that happy medium range of, of their blood glucose levels? We don't want them be, to become hypoglycemic. We also don't want them to come in with a blood glucose of, of greater than 200. And so the risk then always becomes when they come into pre-op, where are they at? You get that baseline and depending on your facility's protocol will determine the, really the dosage that you're going to be giving either of the insulin or to give that patient a a boost in their blood glucose levels. And again, you'll check that again if you have to make any alterations before you start the procedure. Lastly, with this category, we want to talk about GLP-1 agonist. And it's important that we hold these GLP-1 agonists the day of a procedure or surgery for patients who take the medications daily. So examples of these medications would be Ozempic or Trulicity. And if they take this medication weekly, it's also important that we hold this medication the week ahead of the procedure or the surgery. And if they are on these medications, you should consider consulting with an endocrinologist for guidance and patients who are on these GLP-1 agonists, especially for their diabetic management to help control their condition and prevent hyperglycemia. Now, the day of the procedure, if you have patients that take this medication, You should consider delaying the procedure, and you heard me right, delaying the procedure if the patient is experiencing GI symptoms such as severe nausea, vomiting, retching, abdominal bloating, abdominal pain, and discuss those concerns with them with the potential risk for regurgitation, aspiration with the patient, and then also the proceduralist or the surgeon in terms of if we need to to delay the, the procedure. You should only continue with the procedure if the patient has no GI symptoms and if the GLP-1 agonist medication has been held appropriately. So if they take it weekly, it should have been held the week before. If they take it daily, it should be held that day. And if the patient has no GI symptoms, but they still got the GLP-1 agonist, they did not hold it then we should use precautions based on the assumption that they have a full stomach. So you're going to be considering an RSI here. You can consider using an ultrasound to evaluate the stomach contents. If the stomach is empty, then you can proceed as usual. And if it is full, that gastric ultrasound is inconclusive, or you're not able to do that ultrasound, then you should either consider delaying the procedure or proceed using a full stomach precautions. And again, this should all be explained to the patient ahead of time about the potential risk for regurgitation, aspiration before you move forward with the procedure.
0: Right. And it seems like these GLP-1 agonists are showing up more and more with our patient medications. And we pulled our information here from the ASA guidelines, but it's important that you also just make sure that you're adhering to the different organizational guidelines that you have at your hospital as well. I I know there's, you know, different maybe varying here on some small details about how you would manage these patients day of surgery. But it's important that we are keeping in mind the overarching thought process of, you know, why we're concerned about these, you know, with the full stomach, delayed gastric emptying, those types of things that we're paying attention to those. Those are causing flags to go up in your brain as you're seeing these on the medication list. And then also that you're just able to properly manage them or delay surgery, cancel surgery, those types of things depending on the patient medication profile. So important to keep in mind. And again, I just feel like we're just seeing more and more of it here recently. So important that we touch on it here. We've talked about anxiolytics. We've talked about glucose management. Now we're going to move into some different medications the patients might be taking at home. Here, we're going to mainly talk about herbal agents and then also illicit drug use. And so I'm going to start here with herbal agents that the patients might be taking and the first thing that I wanted to touch on here is just the overall kind of thought process of what we need to consider when we're talking about patients with herbal medications they're taking at home. So first and foremost, we need to remember that herbal supplements are not regulated by the same strict standards as prescription medications. So there can be some variability in the different medications that they're taking, even if you know it's the same medication from one person to the next. The, the lack of regulation can cause some variability there. And so we can see some different interactions with our anesthetic drugs simply because of the chemical makeup of these herbal supplements. It also can have different interactions with our body system. So first thing I think of is blood clotting, things like garlic, ginkgo, fish oil. Those can have effects on the blood clotting systems. And so you can see some increased risk for bleeding with these patients. Important to keep that in mind. We can also see issues with blood pressure. So things like ginseng or licorice or hawthorn can also affect blood pressure. And so you can see some variability and some unstable blood pressures as you are managing these patients intraoperatively. We talked about patients that are on benzos at home, and you can also see you know increased sedation or relaxation in the perioperative setting. Same thing here with herbal supplements, things like Kava or Kim. Chamom- male, you can see some of those same sedative attributes for those patients. And that might be something that's explaining the different, you know, situation that you're seeing with your patient. Something that is less visible, but just as real is the liver function that these herbs can affect as well. So, you can see differences in the liver's metabolic pathway. So, these different herbs that can be actually changing how our body processes through the medications that we're giving intraoperatively. So you can see these enzymes being ramped up and then you can see them chewing through different anesthesia medications very fast. So St. John's wort, for example, can induce some enzymes that will speed up the drug metabolism. And you'll notice that the drugs they are giving just aren't lasting as long. And that's simply because of the different herbal medications they're taking at home. I mentioned some of the specific ones there that have issues with you know, blood pressure or clotting issues or maybe some uh, sedative properties as well. A couple that I just wanted to mention here. So garlic is something that we see pretty frequently. Some people will take it to lower cholesterol and blood pressure, but that's where you can see some increased bleeding in the intraoperative setting. Ginkgo, people will take that to improve memory. But again, you can also see increased risk of bleeding as well. And then ginseng, so another G here, typically uh, given to help improve concentration, and that can also increase your heart rate. And then again, you can see the higher risk of bleeding there. The other one that I wanted to mention, I mentioned St. John's wort, and so that is going to be used to help alleviate anxiety, but you can also see prolonged effects of anesthesia there. And then also vitamin E is another one I wanted to mention that can increase the risk for bleeding and then also can cause some bl- blood pressure instability as well. Those are the main ones I wanted to talk about with the herbal side effects. Again, it's important that you know you're, you're able to look things up if you need, you know, if you have a specific medication they're taking at home that you're not familiar with. Again, here we can't touch on every single possible thing that they might be taking, but we want to connect why that's important to our anesthetic and how that can actually change our anesthetic or cause different issues in the perioperative setting. And so hopefully that is a quick rundown of different herbal agents and how that can affect our anesthetics. Another part that I wanted to touch on here is the illicit drug use. And this is something that, again, it's all across the board, and we can't go into every single specific. Here, we'll go into some of the major ones that we see in the operating room or in the perioperative setting, but we don't have time to go through every single one. But again, we'll start from a high view, and we'll go into some specifics here. So the different things that can happen with illicit drugs, you can see them interact with our anesthetic medications with all different types of body systems, so cardiovascular you can see stimulants like cocaine or amphetamines can have significant, significant effects on the cardiovascular system. You can see, especially with amphetamines, a depletion of your catecholamines, and then you can have some severe hypotension that is unresponsive to typical methods of trying to raise the blood pressure. And so that's something that you can see with the cardiovascular side of things. Again, you can see irregular heartbeats. You can see high blood pressure, like I just mentioned, low blood pressure and then also an increased risk for heart attacks as well respiratory depression you'll see uh, you know if they're taking chronic opioids or if they're taking illicit drugs in the form of opioids then you can see you can have this respiratory depression especially when you're combining that with our anesthetic medications that we're giving i mentioned with the herbal agents that the different drugs that are given can sometimes change the metabolism And cause our patients to chew through medications a lot faster. In a similar way, if you're using these, chronic drug use can alter the body's response to the anesthesia medication. So you can see an increased requirement for our anesthetics to achieve that same desired effect. One more thing I wanted to touch on here is the uh, weakened immune system, sometimes with the use of illicit drugs, then they can potentially have increased risk for infections after surgery. So, important to keep that in, in mind as well. So, another
1: thing to consider with this topic is the different drug interactions that can occur. So, specifically with marijuana, marijuana can interact with a variety of anesthesia medications, potentially leading to very unpredictable results. So, One of the things that we're really concerned about is using intravenous anesthesia medications and how that will affect the central nervous system. So depending on if the patient is acutely intoxicated or a chronic user will depend on if you need to give more or less uh, your intravenous anesthesia medication. So if a patient is acutely intoxicated It's going to have a very sedative effect and almost just have an anesthesia depth to begin with. So, you're not going to need to give as much of your IV anesthetics. But again, if somebody is chronically on these medications, their tolerance is going to be higher and you're going to need to give a lot more of your anesthesia medications to get a patient to a certain MAC level that you're looking for. And again, as I just mentioned, marijuana has sedative effects and its use before surgery might lead to an increased sedation during anesthesia. And that, again, is more going to be. If the patient is acutely intoxicated by it, it depends on how close to the, the surgery that the patient actually took marijuana. It can also cause some delayed recovery. So marijuana is gonna affect uh, the metabolism of, of other anesthesia medications, which is gonna delay the, the wakefulness in a patient and, and keep them prolongedly sedated after surgery. Some of the anesthetic medications that are metabolized by different liver enzymes that will then be affected by marijuana, this also will draw out the metabolism of those medications and allow them to last a lot longer, which is why we see a patient take longer recovery to actually wake up. Psychologically, marijuana can have an effect as well, including an altered perception, paranoia, anxiety. And this can potentially be exasperated when you combine the patient with a disorientation that occurs around anesthesia. So if you have a patient who either you're doing a MAC anesthetic on, you've started to give some medications in pre-op, or maybe they're, they're waking up from a general anesthetic in the post-operative setting, whatever the case may be, you often have some disorientation just from the anesthetic effects. But now you you complement that with the marijuana and you're, it can grow to have an exasperated effect with the the amount of disorientation that you can see. Marijuana also has an impact on the way that patients can perceive pain. So just know that the pain management strategies you use in recovery may have to be altered for patients that are on marijuana. And it might be a case-by-case basis depending on how much alternative pain management strategies that you're going to be using. Marijuana is also sometimes used to alleviate nausea and vomiting, but again, it also can cause nausea and vomiting due to a delayed gastrointestinal motility. So just keep in mind here that patients that are on marijuana could also have a complicated recovery process after anesthesia with the nausea and vomiting as well. And I briefly mentioned this before, but marijuana can have a an impact on cognitive memory and cognitive function, which is, again just going to aid to the fact that they may feel very disoriented. It'll affect how they perceive and remember their surgical experience. And it, it can cause and induce temporary amnesia as well. So, so just kind of keep in mind that when you have a patient that's on marijuana, check how regularly, for one, that they are taking marijuana. That'll That'll, for one, tell you, If you're going to be needing to give a lot more anesthetic medications, or if it's something that they were just acutely intoxicated on, it might actually aid in your sedative effects. But again, just know that it can cause a lot of changes in your strategies of taking care of the patient, both intraoperatively as well as postoperatively.
0: All right. Hopefully, you're still tracking with us. We've gone through the different management for glucose medications. We've now gone through different herbal agents and illicit drug use. Now we're going to move on to psychiatric medications. So these are medications the patient will be taking at home prior to an anesthetic. They come to you know the hospital for their anesthetic and we need to know how are these medications they're taking going to affect the perioperative setting? How are they going to affect the drugs that we're giving? And it's important that we take a minute to look at this. So the first group that we're going to talk about are tricyclic antidepressants. Side effects that you can see with these are from the anticholinergics. You can see sedation, urinary tension, constipation, prolonged gastric emptying, dry mouth, blurry vision, all things that you see with anticholinergics. You can see direct myocardial depression. You can see some tachycardia, arrhythmias. This is where we start to, we'll get into this here in a second, EKG interval prolongation. Again, this is something that is probably one of the the most important things that we need to consider when we're talking about the drugs that we're giving and then some alterations also in contractility that you can see as well. When you hear that list, hopefully you're already starting to think about medications that we could give that might play into that same side effect profile. So if we have a patient that is on these tricyclic antidepressants, then we should be thinking about how these medications that we can give could interact. The, the one thing that I think about is serotonin syndrome, and we'll get into this We're talking about SSRIs and SNRIs as well. But you're going to want to avoid opioids like meperidine, methadone, and even fentanyl can play into the serotonin syndrome. You're going to want to avoid things like Zofran. We know that that can play into a patient experiencing serotonin syndrome. And then also tramadol would be another thing that you could potentially be wanting to give that you should be very wary of. these patients are on these tricyclic antidepressants you can see increased sedation because of the anticholinergic side effects try to avoid atropine and scopolamine if you can and you should also know that this can actually increase your mac requirement so as you're sedating these patients keep that in mind as you are getting them adequately sedated that your mac might be increased If you can, try to use multimodal analgesia. If you can, regional anesthesia is great for these patients. Something that on paper probably sounds very, very black and white. And when we're actually providing care for these patients, there's nothing that I just said is an absolute contraindication, but it's something that should be very much on your mind and something that you're considering and really weighing the value versus the risk for these patients. You know, is 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 this patient at a massive risk for postoperative nausea vomiting on a case that is going to be very sensitive to a patient that is retching after a case? You know, are we going to have like a wired shut jaw that we really, really don't want to have any nausea vomiting. At that point, you can look at their QT as Zofran an option for these patients. I know that you can have serotonin syndrome, but when we're thinking about the you know the interval prolongation of your e k g and now you're trying to think about other things that could prolong your q t This is, again, a risk-benefit conversation to have, and, and hopefully this is just bringing up some of those things that you should be considering and thinking through. For SSRIs and SRNIs as well, the side effects that we'll see here, sometimes you can see abnormal bleeding. You can also see hypertension, tachycardia, dry mouth, dizziness, a little bit of sedation as well with these patients. For us, with anesthesia, you should be thinking about the risk for abnormal bleeding I mentioned serotonin syndrome with the tricyclic antidepressants. Again, this is something that obviously you will be very, very aware of with these SSRIs and SNRIs. And also, again, we're gonna be talking here about QT prolongation. You need to be thinking about any of the agents that you have, I think of Zofran immediately, that could prolong that QT that you potentially would want to avoid for these patients. You can see an increased duration of action for your benzos and then you're also for your neuromuscular blocking medications as well that when they're on these SSRIs and SNRIs so keep that in mind as you're managing these patients might be a solution for an issue that you're having
1: so lastly, we're going to talk about anticoagulants, and we do have an entire episode devoted towards walking through the the platelet plugging, going through PTT, INR, things like that. I'm going to skim through the clotting cascade and everything today, but if you want more information and, and more in-depth information about the clotting cascade, feel free to check out our hematology episode where we we walk through all of that. We talk about diseases such as von Willenbrand factor or von Willenbrand disease, et cetera. And we go through things like that. So feel free to check that out. But for today, I I do want to kind of review some of that anatomy, which makes more sense in my mind where all these different anticoagulation medications fit in. So when you have a platelet plug, an uninjured blood vessel is not going to clot because the endothelium constantly is releasing prostaglandin, I2 and nitric oxide, which is going to inhibit platelets from working. Now, when there's an injury to that vessel though, thromboxane A2 is going to be released, which causes the smooth muscle around the vessel to spasm, which will decrease the blood flow to that site of injury. And this helps then decrease the blood loss and it builds up procoagulants. After that spasm, then, there's three steps that occur to form a platelet plug. There's adhesion, activation, and aggregation. So in adhesion, when that layer, the endothelial layer is damaged, it exposes the underlying collagen, and von Willenbrand factor is released from that damaged endothelial layer, and it's going to bind to the GP1B receptors on that platelet, which then anchor that platelet to the subendothelium. Is saying the platelets are going to bind to that collagen and are activated at that point. So, activated platelets are, once they bind to that collagen, like I said, will be activated. And then they release thromboxane A2 and ADP, which in turn activate other platelets, help aggregate them together by allowing the glycoproteins on that platelet to, to bind to fibrinogen. And those activated platelets will release contents from inside of them, such as fibrinogen, fibronectin, von Willenbrand factor. And those platelets have two glycoproteins on their surface that uh, together, these receptors will, will pull in and aggregate platelets together and form what we know as a platelet plug. And that's the aggregation that we see. So now it's important to note that the platelet count typically in a body is between 150 and 300,000 per millimeter cubed. However, the bleeding time, this is very important here, the bleeding time is a measure of that platelet function based on how long it takes to form a platelet plug. So all those processes that I just talked about, how long does that take to happen? And when you have a patient who is on aspirin or NSAIDs, it's going to extend that bleeding time which is normally up to 10 minutes. And so if a patient is less than 50,000 on their count for their, for their platelets, then this is gonna increase the surgical bleeding risk. So again, if you have patients on these medications and you have a drop in their platelet count, then it's gonna increase that surgical bleeding risk and you need to have a conversation with the surgeon. If you have a patient come in in pre-op, they didn't hold these medications, what is the surgeon comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? What is their current platelet count, et cetera? Now, I want to talk about the coagulation cascade, and this is also known as secondary hemostasis. And you have two different pathways here. You have the extrinsic pathway and the intrinsic pathway. And they're two cascades is that will converge on this common final pathway leading to fibrinogen, and that's what we want to get to. So now there are 13 factors. I'm not going to go through and name them all. We're not going to memorize them right now. But again, if you want to, go to our hematology episode, and we'll talk about all of that. But the goal of the intrinsic and the extrinsic, like I said, is to converge then on this final common pathway, which is that factor 10. So we want to get to factor 10. The extrinsic pathway, so the E for extrinsic, is initiated from outside of the vessel. That's why it's extrinsic. The intrinsic is initiated from inside the vessel. Now, extrinsic only takes a few seconds, whereas intrinsic takes several minutes to occur. So that's important to keep in mind when we talk about what medications we give that are gonna act on either the extrinsic or the intrinsic. So first for extrinsic, it's activated, like I said, outside the vessel wall. So for example, maybe a crushing injury that occurs. And the extrinsic pathway starts with a tissue factor being released that causes factor 7 to be activated and binds to calcium, which is factor 4. Now, this allows factor 10 then to be activated. And again, our goal is to get to factor 10 to start that final common pathway. So that's it. We've already done the extrinsic pathway. Now, how do we block this pathway? We block it by giving warfarin. Warfarin, due to its ability to inhibit vitamin K from being active, and preventing the following clotting factors, 2, 7, 9, and 10. By doing that, and by preventing those clotting factors from working appropriately, you now prevented this extrinsic pathway from, from happening. So how do you reverse this? If, if a patient is on warfarin, how do you how do you reverse it so that we now are having appropriate vitamin K, which are appropriately causing these factors to be made? And that's by giving vitamin K. And that takes several, several days, we'll get into. But so if, if you don't want to wait that long, then you can give FFP to give more of an immediate reversal. So how do we measure how well we're blocking this? And that's by giving measurements such as PT and INR. So since this is for extrinsic, it measures how long to perform a clot via that tissue factor and calcium. Normal time is around 12 to 14 seconds. Now, this will be increased with warfarin to two or three times that amount. So keep in mind that how we test this is by measuring either that that INR or that PT. And we'll get into that here in a bit. The intrinsic pathway is activated by the vessel itself being damaged. And it starts with factor 12 being activated from collagen that is exposed, as we talked about, to that, that damaged endothelium. And it activates factor 11, which activates factor 9 in the presence of calcium, and then activates factor 8 which will then activate factor 10. So again, if you're not trying to memorize all that right now, I won't go through all the names of it, but go to our hematology episode if you want a more in-depth description of that. So now that we reached factor 10, we're at the final common pathway where extrinsic and intrinsic converge. So what medications then are going to block the intrinsic clotting pathway and this is heparin. So by giving heparin it binds to antithrombin. And antithrombin is an anticoagulant in the plasma that prevents the coagulation by blocking thrombin. So the name there suits itself. Now, heparin makes antithrombin work much better and it assists in blocking factors 2 and 9 through 12. So that's why it blocks the intrinsic pathway here when we give heparin. Now, to reverse heparin, we can give protamine. Patients can have antithrombin deficiency, in which heparin won't work for them, because if you give heparin and you're you're hoping to alter the antithrombin effects, but if they already have antithrombin deficiency, then heparin's not going to have any effect on these patients. So these patients are more at risk than for for clotting, and then treatment is going to include an antithrombin concentrate. So if you're ever in uh, let's say open heart procedure, you're giving heparin and the ACT does not go above four hundred to do on bypass, you give more heparin, it still doesn't do that then you can give this antithrombin concentrate. Patients can also have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which is a immune response to heparin. In type 1 heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, heparin causes the platelets to aggregate, and in type 2, the body releases IgG antibodies that activate platelets and cause lots of plugs to be formed, but the platelet count falls because the body is unable to make enough new platelets. So that this happens, you need to stop heparin immediately, give anticoagulants with thrombin inhibitors. And the gold standard for the diagnosis of this is a positive C serotonin release assay. So how do you measure intrinsic pathway? You measure this by PTT and ACT. So the APTT stands for activated partial thromboplastin time, typically around 30 seconds. And it measures the time it takes to make a clot using calcium and phospholipids. And this will be increased by about two times the amount with heparin. We can also measure it with ACT or activated clotting time, which is typically around 100 to 120 seconds. And we usually test the ACT in procedures where we give heparin. So again, the open heart procedure or vascular procedure. The goal of the final common pathway is to start from that factor 10 and make all the way by activating factors to get to factor two, which is prothrombin, which will then be activated into thrombin. That's the goal. Then that thrombin will activate factor one, fibrinogen, in the presence of calcium to make reinforced fibrin. And that, that's that big clot we want to get. So this process is inhibited as well by heparin. So heparin will inhibit the intrinsic and the final common pathway. So how do we block this? I again, mean, we've talked about some of these medications so far, but antiplatelets block the primary platelet plug. So ADP receptor inhibitors such as Plavix, G2B, 3A receptor antagonists, or COX inhibitors such as aspirin and NSAIDs, these should all be stopped for several days before a procedure. Anticoagulants that block the clotting cascade such as heparin, again, as we talked about, will block intrinsic and common pathways. You can give thrombin inhibitors such as Herudin, vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin, which you should stop two to four days before the procedure. As we talked about, this slowly then will be reversed. Additionally, if you need to reverse it quickly, you can give that FFP that we talked about. For neuraxial procedures, if a patient is on heparin, let's say sub-Q, if they're on less than 5,000 units every eight hour, then you need to wait four to six hours before the procedure. You need to verify a normal APTT. If it's over 7,500 units, Q8 hours, then you need to wait 12 hours, and then you need to wait one hour after removing the catheter before you restart the next dose. If it's a heparin IV infusion, you need to wait four to six hours. Again, verify your normal PTT prior to the procedure, and then wait four hours after pulling the catheter to restart. If the patient's on Vovinox, say 40 milligrams sub Q daily, you need to wait at least 12 hours prior to these procedures and four hours after pulling out the catheter. Warfarin, again, you need to wait four or five days and verify a normal INR prior to the procedure, and you can remove the catheter when the INR is less than 1.5. And you can go on and on with all these anticoagulations, so you need to look at what your facility's protocols are, different sources. Uh, There's big tables out there with all these different anticoagulants regarding your actual procedures, but again, it's important to know what areas they're going to be targeting in this coagulation cascade and what measurement values you need to be looking at, whether it's a PTT, a PT, INR, bleeding time, et cetera. So hopefully this was a good review for, for you in terms of the different types of home medications, preoperative medications that a patient can be on. Again, there's a wide variety of medications in this category, and we don't have time to go through everything uh, today on this talk, but again, hopefully this is a good review on some of the more main medications that patients will be on and how it will affect our, our anesthetic plan, and then again, adverse effects that we can see from these medications.